Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Who was one of the people most devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary outside of her divine son, Jesus? It was her spouse, St. Joseph. And I think it's always great to have a conversation about St. Joseph. During Pope Francis's year of St. Joseph, I had an entire podcast dedicated to that called Cup of St. Joe, but I like continuing for us to get to know St. Joseph more and more through the different books that have been published. That's really one of the things that the year of St. Joseph did was that it lit a fire for scholarship regarding St. Joseph, and so many people have written about him uh, in the years since the year of St. Joseph. So today, I'm very delighted to be speaking with Paul Thigpen, who is a native of Savannah, Georgia, and grew up on one of the sea islands along the Georgia coast. He is a summa cum laude graduate of Yale University, where he received a BA in religious studies. He earned an MA and a PhD in historical theology as well. He's written a number of books. I think I saw the number was over 40 books. And one of the most recent ones he has out is The Life of St. Joseph as Seen by the Mystics. And grateful to be speaking with you today, Paul. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Father. It's great to be here. Now, I'll tell you this. When I was in the seminary, I was at Mundelein Seminary, and I always hung out. Uh, at least there it was like the BT660 section, and that was the Mariology section. So I, uh, whenever I go back to Mundelein Seminary and go into their library and go downstairs, I always feel at home when I'm among the books about Mary because I'm a Marian scholar and theologian, and uh, that's just a, a, a part of the library I'm very familiar with. But as the library shelf converts from Life of Mary goes into Joseph and to the saints and stuff. But one of the books that was always down there was The Life of Mary as Seen by the Mystics. And it's a book by uh, Raphael Brown that was published by Tan Books back in 1991. And it seems that your book now, The Life of St. Joseph as Seen by the Mystics, is really a companion, a brother book, if you will, uh, to that book by Raphael Brown. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, it is. The uh, Tan approached me. I've, I've written other books for him and said they were thinking about doing this book as a companion. And, and St. Joseph, I've loved all my Catholic life. So I said, please pick me, pick me. And, uh, and they did. <laughs> so it was such a joy. That's great. Yeah. You know, Tan Books, uh, they like doing that. Like they look at some of the classics that they've had over the years and they're like, well, maybe we could have a new one that's kind of a companion to it that's a little different because they even approached me. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere, but they wanted to do something with there was this classic book written by Father Paul Sullivan, and it was called uh, The Holy Name of Jesus. And so they asked me if I'd consider writing The Holy Name of Mary Companion, kind of very similar style mm. and such. So um, that is something that they like to do, uh, to, to parallel and have these companions uh, to their books. So uh, one of the questions I'm curious, because I have done a lot of research, so I'm probably like one of only, I don't know how many people in the world that have completely read The Mystical City of God by Maria of Agreda. So over 2,600 pages. I read it. I did it as a podcast last year, actually, day by day, worked in collaboration with Tan Books on that. 
and uh, and so really helped to promote that work, that four volume life of Mary. So so I'm very familiar with um, with uh, Maria Vagreda, for example. I know of Anne Catherine Emmerich, but who are some of these other mystics? So those are the two mystics that immediately come to mind. But I'm sure there's others. Yes, I, ch- I chose five. So there's and some of them overlapped with that, the other book by Brown, the uh, Life of Mary is seen by the mystics. And uh, of those, four of the, the volumes of literature I was looking at were f- focused Mary, uh, on main, mainly on Mary. Um, but of course, even those uh, are going to have Joseph show up a number of times because he's so important in the life of Mary. And then, uh, but but one of them in particular you may not have heard of, I had not before, is Venerable Maria Cecilia Baiz, who is uh, an Italian um, mystic and nun, uh, died in 1766. Her whole vision that I was drawing from actually was was a life of St. Joseph that way. But some of the others, uh, Marina de Escobar, a venerable uh, mystic, died in 1653. And uh, let's see. Oh, and then, of course, St. Bridget of Sweden was uh, chronologically the first that I was drawing from. Uh, most folks have probably heard about her, but uh, may not be aware that uh, she had a, a number of uh, private revelations that she collected together into um multiple volumes, uh, 1,500 pages called Heavenly Revelations, nine volumes. And it was among one of the, one of the most popular books in, in late medieval Europe. So those are, those are the five, the three, the, those three I mentioned and the ones that, uh, that you just mentioned. Yeah, I must uh, confess that I don't have any familiarity with Servant of God, Marina de Escobar, or Venerable Maria Cecilia Beige, or however you said her last name. So um, I, I guess why should we draw upon, why should we read some of these mystical writings from these five people, for example, that you identified? You know, the, it's really important for us to establish first, and I do in the book, there's a, a, a long chapter in the beginning, uh, kind of the difference between private revelations and public revelation that the church teaches us, that the public revelation given to the church came to us through through Christ, to the apostles, and then and to us through them, and that it was complete uh, at the end of the apostolic age. And so scripture is a part of that, um, sacred tradition, and it has to be authentically interpreted by the magisteria. And so that's something that, as as faithful Catholics, we're, we're under obligation to believe. Public revelation, on the I'm uh, sorry, private revelation, on the other hand, um, is something that from time to time God has given to individuals since the time of public revelation. Uh, and its purpose is to help us understand more deeply um, the, the public revelation that we have and to bring us closer to God in various ways. And, uh, and the church teaches real clearly, though, that um, there are a lot of claims to private revelation out there. Some are spurious. Um, some are kind of uncertain. And that in the cases where the church has, has examined them and said, um, you know, given an approval, what it's saying is there's nothing contrary to, to faith of morals. And, um, but the church insists that we cannot put private revelation on the same level as the gospel or scripture in general or as the sacred tradition, that we have to, um, that, that the purpose of it is, um, is the things that I mentioned and, and for private devotion. And therefore, it, the church does not oblige every Catholic to believe any of the private revelations. So we just need to say that first, because I have, have occasionally run to people who will, say, read something from Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich or Mary of Agreda, and they'll 
Um, and then they'll repeat it and say, this is what really happened. We know this is what really happened and as if it were the gospel. Um, but we, we are told uh, again and again by the church that we have to look at these, um, not, certainly not as gospel, not as theological treatises, not even assist, you know, reliable history in every detail. Uh, and we, and we know that because if you look at some of the, some of what they said, their revelations aren't, aren't in agreement all the way, even in some, some major issues. So they can't all be historically accurate in every detail. But nevertheless, uh, even though we don't approach them as if the writers were scientists or historians or gospel writers, we see them more as, uh, it's, I like to think of it as almost as a sacred drama that it's, God has, has given it as a way to, to bring us deep, more deeply into these particular ones, into the gospel story. Uh, the same way St. Ignatius of Loyola taught us about meditating on the gospel, how you put yourself in the, in the scene. And that it, it does that. And, uh, we, we should accept it then not so much as history, but as almost like a, I like to say there's a, there's a fusion of realistic detail and mystical imagery in these that, that has the same kind of result as the best of visionary cinema, something like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Cross, of the Christ. Um, and in fact, there are scenes in that movie that come from these mystics, two of these mystics. So uh, again, it's, you know, it's just a caution. But the, but to go back to your original question, the reason we read them then is not to kind of get some kind of new revelation that's not in the public revelation. Um, it's not really to answer our questions about the end times or that kind of stuff. It's to to deepen our devotion to our Lord, uh, and in these particular cases, by deepening our, our devotion to the Holy Family. I like that you mentioned kind of this idea of the disagreement between the mystics. And in fact, I was giving a paper at a conference, and so what, what I had done was I, and it was an Eastern conference, and so what I did was I, I selected Maximus the Confessor. Stephen Shoemaker had translated from Georgian into English The Life of the Virgin by Maximus the Confessor, dating in the 800s, 900s. And so I, I took him as the representative of the East, and then I took Kath, Anne Catherine Emmerich and Maria Vagreda, and I said, well, let's look at different moments in the life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph— and see what these writings, you know, uh, what Maximus would tell us, what Maria, what Anne Catherine Emmerich would tell us, and see if there is agreement. And that was one of the critiques then, you know, that was brought out in the question and answer, because, for example, when it comes to maybe the age of Joseph or the age of Mary or whatever, <laughs> that there wasn't agreement. So, so why is there disagreement, and does that dismiss the work or... How should we approach that? Because I, I do think that people have that reservation then. Sure. Yeah. I, I love a quote in the book. And I'm going to read the quote. Just, I know we're, you know, got a podcast. I don't want to read too much. But uh, the Jesuit scholar, Father uh, Auguste Poulain, French, uh, was a, a great mystical theologian, a theology of, of, of a, a scholar of mystical theology. And he had a classic treatise on mystical theology called The Graces of Interior Prayer. And he explains it this way, and I think it's really beautiful. He says, when visions represent historic scenes, they often have an approximate and probable likeness only. It is a mistake to, to attribute an absolute accuracy to them. Many saints have, in fact, believed that the event took place exactly as they saw it. But God does not deceive us when he modifies certain details. If he tied himself down to absolute accuracy in these matters, 
We should soon be seeking to satisfy visions and idle desire for erudition and history or archaeology. He has a nobler aim, that of the soul's sanctification. He is like, and I love this analogy, he is like a painter who, in order to excite our piety, is content to paint scenes in his own manner, but without departing too far from the truth, meaning the historical truth. And then he also goes on to say that God has another reason sometimes for modifying certain details. Sometimes he adds to them or adds them to a uh, historical scene in order to bring out the secret meaning of the mystery, that there's something the actual historical spectators did not see, but God has put it into the visions. So uh, because it brings out something perhaps symbolically or, or in some other way. So he, he concludes, we, we can't seek to remake history by the help of, of these revelations. So I like to say, God's using, it's almost like God uses a kind of artistic license in the visions or locutions that he prompts. Um, and then Father Plain also says that it's possible uh, that errors could be introduced um, in, in other ways. The human mind of the visionary may mix some of its own thoughts or images, impressions into those. The record of the revelation may be altered when visionaries write or dictated at a later time, or secretaries may introduce errors. A printed text may be an incomplete version, inaccurate translation. Other things like that. So, again, all all the more reason why the church says, don't take this as gospel. Don't put it on the same level as public revelation. But there is very beautiful, powerful uh, material here that can draw us closer and deepen our prayer lives. Between the mystics cited, what do they put forward about the age of St. Joseph? I think this is a great question because, of course, um, some artistic depictions we know depict Joseph as a very older older person, kind of the guardian, the protector of Mary's virginity, and so they, they put him then as this older man. Uh, more contemporary scholars are trying to really distance themselves from that and say that, you know, he was a... He was a virile young man, you know, and kind of placing him there as kind of a model of virtue, et cetera, that, that he can be an example in that regard. So what do the mystics say about his age? You know, they seem to tend in the direction, the older direction of his being older. But we have to keep in mind uh, that for biblical times, old, you know, for a man to get married when he's old, he could be in his 40s, he could be in his late 30s. And because uh, Mary, you know, most of them agree would have been a teenager at the time, uh, given the customs. And so we have to be careful that we're not necessarily here imagining a man with gray hair, though they did use that, that art for the cover of the book. Um, that, but but you get hints, like you have, um, I can't remember which one said it, because I wove all this, I should mention, I didn't just kind of pull out pieces and cut and paste passages. I took it from all these sources and then wove it into a single narrative, the same way the the life of Mary is seen by the mystics had been done. So it reads like a biographical novel. And so one of the things that that means is that it's hard for me to kind of go back in my mind and say, okay, this detail came from that work and this one came from that work. But I remember one of them, uh, they'll they'll be kind of subtle where they have one of the customers that comes into to Joseph's, um, I think it's, it comes into Joseph's workshop and and makes a comment about, uh, boy, you sure married marry a young woman, you know, or something like that, or, or how much younger she is than you are. So, you know, it, it shouldn't surprise us. See, the, the earliest, really, uh, writing we have about Joseph like this is the, the Proto-Evangelium of, mm. of St. James. Uh, not long, really, after, I mean, before the canon was, was uh, put together totally by the church, and the church could have put it in the canon, but chose not to for I think probably some some obvious reasons, but in that he is shown, you know, as, as being the older man, 
And um, <clears throat> so those kinds of uh, views go way back. And I'm not surprised that people up through the Middle Ages and even before would, you know, would have leaned in that direction uh, older. I wrote a piece a number of years ago for a website, uh, Catholic Exchange, and uh, I was fascinated with the visitation. And uh, I was ordained a deacon on the fe- on the feast of the visitation, for example. Uh, I was really mm-hmm. impressed by the Church of the Visitation in uh, the Holy Land uh, in Ein Kerem. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I actually walked from Jerusalem to Ein Kerem, so it was about a six mile walk. Uh, maybe or maybe three miles. I'm not sure, but you know it was downhill. I, I I felt uncomfortable taking the bus, and so I'm like, I will just walk there. And uh, there was something about that, you know. Mary walked and whatnot. So so I, I I did this piece where I looked at the mystics. I said, well, what was Joseph a part of the visitation? Did he go with Our Lady? Because there's lots of artwork of the visitation, and it's often that Joseph is there in the background. And so I wondered because others say that well he didn't he didn't go so so uh, what was your consensus in in your study of uh, these mystical writers uh, did Joseph go for the visitation? Yes, they did have him there. Um, it is kind of kind of lovely that he he comes up and uh, with her and at some point kind of stops and then she goes on further to to greet Elizabeth. But he's still, you know, he's still present there. And then she and Elizabeth go off into one place to talk. And, uh, and you know, he goes off to, to talk to Elizabeth's husband. And, and um, Zechariah, and what you, what you uh, get is then at the actual, you know, when the Magnificat's being sung and that kind of thing, uh, Mary and Elizabeth are, are together there uh, separately. But for the event as a whole, that Joseph did go with her. And even it's kind of cute. They have them taking turns on the donkey. They one of the things I love about this is it it shows Mary and Joseph showing great deference to each other, trying to honor the other. And um, and so one of the situations of that is they've got a donkey, and so Joseph insists that Mary rides, but she's worried about Joseph getting tired. So she insists you've you've got to you, you've got to ride some and and uh, let me walk. And so in order to defer to her, he lets her walk a little, but he won't get on the donkey. And then eventually he puts her back on. So anyway, nice details like that, but it's all part of uh, their seeing that Joseph was, was in fact uh, a part of the visitation. Yeah, that that's, uh, yeah, I think that he went with, I think that I, you know, just to think of Mary traveling by herself, I just don't know if a, a young handmaid of Nazareth would do that. And so Joseph, probably as the protector, would have went with, I would think. So um, what was his role, for example, at the nativity of Jesus? Like, did he have an active participation in the birth of, of Christ as he's there as a witness? Yeah, what they saw was... Um, it's kind of interesting to me that they uh, they have Mary when she knows it's time. And I won't say asking him to leave, but basically saying it's time now, so you need to go into another room, which shouldn't be for a lot of people today. That would seem so odd, but you know the truth is when <clears throat> when when I and my my siblings were born, that wasn't that long ago, maybe almost seventy years ago, but. Um, fathers weren't allowed in the rooms <laughs> where the mothers were giving birth. They were sent outside to go to another room or something. So it's that's not really a it's it's kind of a new thing for fathers to be present. But um, the the way that, that they were seeing it was that he steps out then and then um, and she gives birth to the child and he comes back in and sees them all glorious with light when she call, calls him in. 
But uh, but his role, especially as they saw it, was that he has to prepare a place for. So here she is in what's basically a cave there at Bethlehem used as a, a shepherd's um, a barn stable. And he's having to do all kinds of preparations, which Joseph is so good to do. I mean, he's, he's good at doing it, and he's so kind and considerate and thoughtful to do it. So that's really his role. Then also he's the one who kind of acts as the one who welcomes the shepherds and brings them in, and eventually the wise men when they come. What was one of the most surprising things as you kind of combed through the writings of these five <coughs> mystics? Maybe something that you weren't expecting to find about St. Joseph. Wow. Let me think. Um, I, I guess... Boy, that's a really good one. I just think it's a, not too much of it surprised me. A lot of it really deeply touched me. But for instance, um, I guess one of the things would have been that at the end of his life, <clears throat> as he's he's being sub- subject to more and more illness and other kinds of, of affliction, and uh, it's all part of God's plan, and Jesus is, is there in the workshop helping him, taking over the work from him, and Mary's caring for him. Uh, I think it was one of the things that just struck me. I, I, was just, all right, I wasn't expecting this was that uh, the mystics seemed to agree that, um, that though Joseph had all these terrible burdens, physically, afflictions, um, that he, arthritis, for instance, I remember that because I have that myself, he he did not die from them. He died of love, that all through his life he had such a consuming love for God and then for the Son of God and, and for Mary, that if God had not, by kind of an ongoing miracle, uh, given his body grace, <laughs> that that all-consuming love would have just consumed his soul and it would have broken away from his body a long time before. But as he got toward the end, then the Lord began to with, withhold that, or, you know, withdraw that grace. Until finally at the end, what gets him or, you know, what brings him uh, out of this world isn't the, the illness as it is his all-consuming love. That's a, That's a beautiful thing to think about. And as we think about St. Joseph, we see how people are devoted to him. Not only do we have different prayers and litanies and all of that, but but people do have this very genuine devotion to St. Joseph. And I'm just curious, maybe, how did reading the mystics, how did writing the life of St. Joseph as seen by the mystics, how did that impact your own personal devotion uh, to the foster father of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> he, uh, you know, I transformed it. I have to say, I, uh, I'm an adult convert to the Catholic faith, and uh, on in April uh, this this month, it was 30 years since my wife and children and I came into the church. And um, at that time, I chose Saint Joseph to be my patron saint, and so he's he's always had a very special role for me, and he's helped our family so many times, um, whether it's with real estate situations or just anything having to do with the family and home, because he's the patron. Of, of husbands and fathers and of the home. And um, we even, the home we live in now, we retired up in the mountains in North Georgia, and we've called it St. Joseph's Refuge. And someday I, I can tell you this great story about how St. Joseph made it clear this was the house he, that we were to buy. But um, so we have a sign out front, St. Joseph's Refuge. So as I said, when, when Tan said, why don't you do this, or we need someone to do this, I said, well, pick me. And, uh, but I, it brought me, again, it's kind of like the Ignatian approach to Scripture. It brings you into the life of the characters of the gospel, especially Joseph, but some of the others, in a whole new way, because it uh, 
you begin to realize the implications of what we do know from Scripture about St. Joseph. Um, so, for instance, if, um, if you think about the flight into Egypt, what we know from Scripture is that he's in Bethlehem, he has uh, a dream in the middle of the night, and the angel says, take the child and mother and flee to Egypt. Herod's trying to get him. And then he gets up, he's basically says, yes, sir, he gets up and he goes. I mean, the, the implication seems to be he leaves right in the middle of the night, he packs up things and goes. So think about that. What kind of man would it take to do that, have that kind of faith and that kind of obedience? He's, he's in Bethlehem. Probably the tools of his trade are all or mostly all back in Nazareth. He probably doesn't know anybody in Egypt. He probably doesn't speak Egyptian. He knows that the people of, of Egypt are pagan and they're not real uh, don't like the Jewish people and their religion much. He knows that the road to Egypt is very difficult. He knows that there are you know, robbers along the road and, and venomous snakes and everything else. But with all that, not even knowing how exactly he's going to do everything, how he's going to make a living there, how they're going to find a home, how they're going to make it, he says, yes, sir. He has that kind of faith and he has that kind of courage that he says, okay, let's just go and start out. And so the way they describe uh, that journey is just so beautiful because you, they come across all the kinds. It's not like God just spared all the adversity. They come across and have to go through all the kinds of adversity you would expect, including the robbers, you know, capt- capturing them at one point and, and, uh, and the other, the, the animals and other things. But you see Joseph's, uh, it just begins to illustrate again and again each one of those situations. The faith that Joseph had and the courage that he had and the perseverance, the, the fortitude that he had. And so you, what was once just a kind of an assumption in your mind, yeah, he must have been, as scripture says, a righteous man, must have been full of faith and courage and perseverance. Now you, you have all these beautiful scenes in your mind illustrating that very thing. I really uh, enjoy thinking about the flight into Egypt, and uh, that's one of my favorite uh, pieces of art by Federico Barocci, I think is his name. It's called The Rest on the Flight to Egypt, or The Rest on the Return, maybe. And um, <laughs> If we were doing this by Zoom, I would turn the camera around. I have a huge print of that hanging right over my desk i'm looking at it right now look at that it is one of my favorites it's right there yeah yeah i found it uh there was a barocci exhibit that was at the uh, (laughs) st louis art museum uh when i just was happened to be in town one day and uh and just fell in love with a lot of his artwork and Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but but anyways with the the flight into egypt when i read maria vagreda's account uh, I I was very moved by the fact of you know the false gods and the and the the temples to the pagan gods and whatnot that they fell as Jesus and mm-hmm. Mary and the Holy Family are passing by that these false gods began to crumble because the true God was in their midst and that's something I'll never forget from there's yes. lots of things I forgot from reading the mystical city of God but that's one that I'll never forget. You know, what's powerful about that is that it's actually an ancient tradition. We don't know if it's just legend or something more. But long before these mystics, that there was there was that tradition that that's what happened. Um, that the idols would fall flat on their face. And, of course, there's that interesting parallel with the Old Testament where um, the Ark of the Covenant gets gets captured by Israel's enemies. And they put it in the in the temple to Dagon, their, their pagan god. And they come back the next morning and Dagon's... Uh, idol is face down on the floor in front of the ark and they get you know they know what's going on 
but it's a, it's very interesting parallel there, as as there are lots of parallels between the story of Saint Joseph in the New Testament and the great patriarch Joseph in the Old Testament and Old Testament passages. One of the things we often quip about Saint Joseph, and you know, there's lots of memes about it. For example, like. That, you know, it'll be St. Joseph never said anything in scripture. And so it'll be like quotation marks with nothing in between them. But I'm uh, I'm guessing that we get words from St. Joseph in these writings of the mystics that he spoke. And so we have those words. Would that be a fair assessment? I think so. Again, we can't take it necessarily as history. But for sure, the, the things that he says in, in these visions are in keeping with his character, his his uh, reverence for Our Lady, his reverence for for Jesus, um, yeah, and 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 the kinds of things that he would have had so many opportunities to say. Surely, in the years that he was alive, he would have said these things. You know, probably several points, just just beautiful things. And uh, and he may have been a man of few words. Uh, you know, even in addition to that, uh, but even you know, men of few words have things to say. But he uh, always speaking with wisdom, with kindness, with patience, with prudence. All those virtues that uh, that make a, a man a man, you know, a good man, a righteous man, a just man, as the scripture says. We mentioned a little bit already about the death of St. Joseph. You mentioned that really he dies because of love. And uh, I'm just wondering, is there anything else from the death of St. Joseph that maybe can inform our own way in which we live our life so that we can die a holy death? You know, after the prayers of St. Joseph, you know, that, that he'll pray for us for that happy and holy death. Yes, and I, and I should also mention that in the, the, the visions, um, the mystics talk about how even in his childhood that he God gave him the grace of a special concern for those who were afflicted and dying. And he would counsel them even as a child and talk to them and, and give them great peace as they were suffering that so that. From the very beginning, God had this plan that he would be the patron of the dying. Very beautiful thing to think about. But, um, yeah, from his death, it's, wow, it's, uh, he's, he's, he's ill with all kinds of things. Uh, arthritis is just one of the many things. But what you see is the family circle of the three drawing in closer than ever, um, where Mary's attending to his every need, Jesus is attending to his every need, all the things that he had once done that he can no longer do, they're taking it. Um, he's reviewing his life, and um, and they're reviewing his life together. And it's uh, it's just a really a sweetness about everything they do, and they say that, you know, he can't, at one point, he, he can't even get down to take off his shoes, so either Jesus or Mary will kneel to do that. And um, and he he's thinking about, gosh, are there times when I, I could have treated them more, more more appropriately, I mean, not it was inappropriate, but, uh, you know, sh- show my devotion somehow more deeply or that kind of thing. And they're having to reassure me, it's good, you know, it's all good. It was beautiful to me, especially because um, I, what I, one of the things I, they, they show him doing is that, uh, I think I mentioned before, as, as Joseph becomes less weaker and weaker and less able to do the hard carpenter's work, the Jesus steps in. I mean, he's already, he's always there, but he begins to do more of the work, and Joseph, all Joseph can do is sit there and watch. And and that's one of the things he's just feeling, oh, I just, Joseph is feeling, I wish I could do all this so my son wouldn't have to. And Jesus is saying, Dad, it's fine. I'm, I'm happy to do this for you. And um, and so he came in to help. The, Jesus picked up, you know, the labor to, to do it for him. 
and then was there with him in his final hours. And that meant so much to me personally because it, it reflected something that or, or my own life reflected something similar that many years ago, not long after I married, um, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. and He had nine months from the time he got the diagnosis. We had a family business that was a meat market. And it became clear pretty soon that dad wasn't going to be able to continue to do that. And they would probably lose it, which was all their livelihood. So my, my new wife, we'd only been married short, you know, short time, uh, sold our home and moved back to the home, uh, you know, where my parents were. And I got into the business and began helping with that. So they didn't have to close it. My wife helped uh, my mother with caring for his, his illness. And those were some of the most precious moments that I could have possibly had with my dad in his last, you know, his, um, last months together and i will never regret you going back to do that and so it, it put a whole new light from joseph's life onto me onto my life thinking about how precious it would have been for him and, and understanding it for me but also you know praying for those who um whose parents maybe are are ill or, or uh in difficulty that, that they would be able to find the ways to help them and to be talk close to them and to make the most of the the time that they still have on earth together there's so much that I'm sure when someone picks up the life of St. Joseph as seen by the mystics, that they will learn about him, that they'll come to appreciate. And again, not that it's biblical truth or anything like that, but that there's something in these private revelations that's going to speak to their heart, just as that experience of Joseph's death and how you could relate to that. I think lots of people are going to relate to St. Joseph in new ways because of these revelations of the mystics that you recount here in the life of St. Joseph. If people want to get a copy of the book, where can they go to find it? Go online to tanbooks.com. It's available from Tan. It's also should be available from your local Catholic bookstore. Wonderful. And uh, do you have a presence online, a website or social media? I don't. I have uh, well, a Facebook page. It's it's not much. I've uh, just been so busy writing. I haven't had much time <laughs> to, to keep up with a uh, with a page. But anyway, a lot of the things I've, I've uh, a lot of my books. Just this one was number sixty. So there are a lot of them out there. A lot of the more recent ones in the last ten or fifteen years are from Tan. Uh, there's some other publishers as well, but. I suppose you could Google me and find stuff. Sure. But, there, there yeah. is one that really intrigued me, and that was the extraterrestrial <laughs> intelligence and the Catholic faith. Are we alone in the universe with God and the angels? And this book is 456 pages, so that's a lot of information <laughs> that you are jamming into this book, which means you read a lot, you studied a lot. It's incredible to think about how much work you put into this book. But uh, what's the quick answer? Are, are there aliens or are there not? Do you think the aliens <laughs> really came uh, to, to Roswell, New Mexico? Well, you know, the quick... The book is not primarily about UFOs, and although interestingly enough, today, you know, as we're recording, the Congress just had another hearing on that matter. Um, it's uh, the, my publisher asked me to do an appendix at the end about that when I think about that, so I can say that. But the book is primarily uh, it's really an apologetics book uh, that says that there are people out there who say if we should discover extraterrestrial intelligence, it it contradicts our faith, it undermines our faith, our faith is wrong, and there are even Catholics and other Christians who feel the same way. They worry that if there should be some discovery by scientists or whatever of something out there, that somehow that would be, you know, would contradict the faith. So the point of the book is to show that's not the case at all. Um, it's got two sections. The first section is historical. My, my particular discipline 
academic discipline is historical theology. So when I look at a theological issue, I like to look at the convers- historical conversation, as I call it, going all the way back to even the times before Christ, but especially church fathers, Middle Ages, and since then. So part of what I do is lay out the history of this is a conversation that's been going on for 2,000 years among Christians, 2,500 years at least in the West. So to show that it's it's not far into our faith, we've had all kinds of great Catholic and other Christian theologians considering the possibilities of this. Then the second half of the book, I kind of look at what the church teaches, what's in scripture, what's in the catechism and some other places, papal documents, to show that, that you know, the church really has not uh, given a, a clear teaching on this and apparently is leaving it open to science. And that uh, a lot of, if we were to discover such a thing, a lot of, we have a lot of questions about their relationship. We, we know God would be their creator, but what would be their relationship to Christ, for instance, and their eschatology and other things. So um, it really enriched my faith to consider all these issues, to look at, um, to kind of expand my notion of what it means for God to be all-powerful and creative and, and all those things. Also, uh, in the book, I actually end up kind of being taken back to some of the early controversies in the church about the nature of Christ, because it, it ends up having uh, implications for that, or those controversies end up having implications for how we might you know, view things today. So it also pressed me almost like another grad school course. And this is the most substantive thing I've written since my, my doctoral dissertation, actually. But 550 foot notes, oh my goodness. But anyway, it's, uh, it was mind-opening, mind but also brought me closer to our Lord in so many ways. And I hope it'll do the same for readers. And so that's what the goal of all of your writing is, from the life of St. Joseph as seen by the mystics to extraterrestrial intelligence and the Catholic faith. And I know you've written several prayer manuals for tan books. So there's lots of books out there by you. And if people are looking for some good spiritual reading, I think they have found a treasure uh, in the writings that you've given us. So thanks so much, Paul Thigpen, for joining me today to talk about St. Joseph. You're so kind, Father. God bless you and all your listeners.